Welcome to Tax Justice Warriors, a podcast that celebrates the work of low-income taxpayer clinics and talks about issues related to tax news. I'm your host, Omid Faruzi, staff attorney at Philadelphia Legal Assistance Taxpayer Support Clinic. Today's podcast episode is an interview that I did with Nina Olson and Anna Goosh at the ABA Tax Section Mid-Year Meeting in San Diego on February 10th, 2023. It was a real honor and privilege to speak with Nina and Anna. Nina has really become a colleague and mentor, and it was incredibly humbling, of course, to interview the former national taxpayer advocate. Anna, like me when I started at PLA, is a Brunswick fellow, and she is a fellow Villanova Law alum as well. And we talked in this interview about her Brunswick Fellowship Project and what she and Nina generally have been up to at the Center for Taxpayer Rights. Here is that conversation. So we're here with Anna Gooch and Nina Olson, and we're here at the ABA Tax Section Mid-Year Meeting in San Diego. We're here at the Hilton San Diego Bay Front, and I'm honored to be joined by them today. And I wanted to talk to you both about the work that the Center for Taxpayer Rights does. So, Anna, tell us about the work that the Center for Taxpayer Rights does and how you're involved with it. Okay, well, we do a lot. Um, (laughs) So many things going on at once, all intended to increase awareness of taxpayer rights, increase access to taxpayer rights at the state level, at the federal level, and internationally. Um, My involvement, um, I actually started with the center about a little more than two years ago. I started working sort of at the state level, um, working on just looking at what states are doing uh, related to taxpayer rights. Um, And as the years have gone on, I've sort of expanded my role. I'm currently uh, one of the ABA tax section's Christine Brunswick Public Service Fellows. Um, And I'm still working on the the state-level taxpayer rights, but then also now the national and international taxpayer rights. So Anna's being very modest. So (laughs) we got funding from the Rockefeller Foundation, and one of the things that they funded was our point was that there's a lot of attention about taxpayer rights at the federal level, and we have a federal taxpayer bill of rights. Um, And there are a lot of protections in the Internal Revenue Code. But at the state level, it's a very different environment, and it changes from the state to state to state. And so we were able to make the case to the foundation that they would fund um, work on a survey of state taxpayer rights. And that's where we were able to bring on Anna to develop that survey. And it's a survey that has about 200 questions. And it covers all aspects of tax administration and all sorts of taxes. So not just income tax, but employment, sales, property taxes, etc. And um, we've got volunteers. We've worked closely with the state and local tax section, you know, committee of the, the ABA tax section. And in the, in the fall of 2022, we pulled together, uh, we have a whole series of workshops online about reimagining tax administration. And our focus is tax administration, you know, and how 
tax it, you know, taxpayer rights are incorporated into the administration of the policies and the laws that are, are passed in whatever jurisdiction it is. And so we had, we developed and Anna really convened this really good series of videos that are up on our website about state and local taxpayer rights. And we're continuing because the idea is to get the survey filled out by every single state so you could see what's missing and then we will ultimately we, meaning Anna, will ultimately develop a report that will show, you know, what are some of the best practices. I don't want to say what are some of the worst practices, but some of the practices that we have concerns about. Um, and then, you know, coming up with some recommendations for what states can adopt. And, and we're really, I mean, it's a really developing field. At the same time, you know, we have the reimagining series on running social benefits through the code. We have, uh, in the fall, we're going to do another reimagining series that Les Book, who's on our board, but will be helping to convene, will be helping organize um, on the racial impact in tax administration, not policy. You know, there are a lot of programs going on that ABA, ATPI are working on with racial impact of tax policy, but we're going to pick up the administration point of it, part of it. Uh, so that's something that we're doing on the federal level. And then on the international level, you know, we've taken over the International Conference on Taxpayer Rights. And that's something that, you know, I started as the National Taxpayer Advocate in 2015. We're now up to our eighth. Um, the, con the center itself has done three. So you know, we were sort of flummoxed by COVID. We wanted to be in 2020 in South Africa. The University of Pretoria was going to host us. And I was very excited about that, taxpayer rights in developing countries. We put it off for a year. We were supposed to be in Athens in May of 2021, but COVID was still preventing that. So we held that online and then we thought maybe by October we could be in Pretoria, but we had to put that off again. Well, we didn't put it off, but we held it virtually. And then we hoped we could be at Harvard in 2022. And that couldn't happen because they weren't scheduling events. So we were virtual for three years. But in May of 2023, we're going to be in Chile. We're going to be in Santiago with the University of Chile hosting. And we're working with uh, Judge Panuthos is on our planning committee and several people from, from Chile and the university there and the former taxpayer ombudsman for Chile is on our planning committee and it, the theme is going to be access to judicial review and it's going to be really interesting because we will have judges who are from civil law countries dealing with tax and judges from common law countries who are dealing with tax judges where tax comes up in constitutional courts judges where tax comes up in administrative courts you know and then you have specialized courts and i think it's going to be they're going to be themes that come through all of these different courts dealing with unrepresented taxpayers do you have to pay your tax before you get to judicial review or do you get prepayment for it. And it's going to be, I think, really eye-opening to people. I'm very excited about that. Nice. Well, that's that's very cool. That's very exciting. And Anna, uh, will you be able to go to Chile? And are you going to be involved with these conferences moving forward as well? Yes. Um, I. 
So I think, so something Nina said sort of, I think there are a lot of parallels between what the individual states are doing and then what different countries are doing. So um, at the state level, you have some states have tax courts, but some of them are judicial, some of them are executive. Um, and so they're sort of run by the same people that are running the state tax agency. And I think it's really cool to see those parallels. To answer your question, um, I will be there, um, you know, COVID restrictions permitting. Um, I haven't been, you know, we have hired a wonderful pro bono coordinator who has sort of taken over what would be my place on the planning committee because she is, well, first of all, she's wonderful. She's the and training I, committee. Yes. She's the training coordinator too, yeah. Um, but she's also fluent in Spanish, which is very helpful in, in this, but um, I will be there doing whatever, whatever I can, um, and that's been, it's really neat to see you know you have states which are sort of these little sort of the smallest <laughs> section and then going up to different countries but the issues they're seeing and the, the way that they handle those issues are, are the same a lot of the time so that's well you know the other thing is part of that visit and why Anna will be there also I mean she would be there anyway but why Anna and also Susan Morgenstern will be there our new senior attorney um, is that we received a grant from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation in order, and part of what, and this is something that COVID has done, is it has made some of the foundations that have never really thought about tax, or maybe they've funded, you know, some outreach or VITA or something like that, but COVID woke, you know, made many of the largest foundations aware that the tax system is a benefits disperser. You know, that's the whole social programs through the code. When you got the economic impact payments and you got the advanced child credit, tax credit. And Robert Wood Johnson decided that although they've been focusing on health, the tax system may be, how can you make the tax system to support the health of families and children? And so they gave us a grant to basically go around the world and study how tax agencies or other agencies delivered benefits to women and children. So when we're going down to Chile, we will, for the conference, we'll extend our visit there under the grant so that we can meet with Chilean agencies and NGOs in Chile that are working in that community and also maybe go over to another South American country and meet with the agencies and the NGOs there to learn what they're doing that might be some best practices to bring home, you know, to the different populations that they're trying to reach. And if you ever looked at Chile, it's, you know, it runs the whole length of South America. It is like this long, skinny, mm -hmm. you know, country, and you have real rural, mountainous, how do you get benefits to those people? How do you reach out to those populations in those villages? And that's not unlike, you know, our rural parts of the United States. So we're really taking an expansive view there. And, and so Anna is part of that contract too. Her work on that is part, part of that as well. So we don't know how this is going to evolve, but we're going to have conversations. That's wonderful. Now that, that idea of the tax system being the main way in which social benefits 
get out to people in the United States is what made me in, involved and interested in tax. And Anna and I share an alma mater, Villanova Law, and we know that that's a, a great place to get a good tax education. But for you personally, what was the reason that you wanted to get involved in tax? I feel that this is a good question to ask a Brunswick fellow. You're probably <laughs> asked this all the time, but go ahead. Um, I didn't know when I went to Villanova that it was this like tax hub. Like I, I didn't know who the players were. I went to Villanova because I wanted to do sports law. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was an athlete in college. I thought Title IX was the coolest piece of legislation ever passed. Um, and my advisor told me that federal tax is not a required course, but it's an unofficial required course. And I really thought, and I, I follow directions. So if someone told, tells me to do something, I'll do it. So I took fed tax. And it was the first class that I ever took that I thought I could fail this class. I, you know, I thought it was gonna be, this is how you prepare an income tax return. And I'm not good with numbers, I don't like math. And the first week of class, I thought, this is what I wanna do. And I didn't know, you know, tax is huge. I didn't know what exactly I wanted to do, but I wanted to do tax. And then my third year of law school, I needed some credit, so I signed up for the federal tax clinic class. Um, I didn't know what a clinic was. I didn't know that the low-income taxpayer clinic was part of a big program. I thought it was just this thing that existed at Villanova. I didn't realize there was, you know, there were 130 clinics and I didn't realize it was part of the IRS. And I really, I, you know, I'm comfortable saying this, I really struggled with it. Um, it was hard. And about a month into it, things finally started clicking because you're thrown into real cases with real clients who are facing, you know, you're sort of seeing them at their worst. Um, and it was around October that I, that was it for me. And that was, that was what I was gonna do. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know exactly, you know, what, what happened, but that's how I fell into tax. Um, it was not intentional, but here I am. <laughs> that's, re that's really awesome. And for those of you who are listening, the Brunswick Fellowship is a great opportunity to get involved in tax. I was a Brunswick Fellow from 2018 to 2020, and I highly recommend that fellowship, whether you're an attorney who is listening who wants to sponsor another attorney or whether you yourself would be interested in being a fellow. So I also wanted to ask Nina about uh, the work that uh, you are doing now in terms of still identifying problems at the IRS, because yeah. you still do that, even yeah. though you're no longer, of course, officially yeah. the national taxpayer advocate, yeah. but I'd like to call you the national taxpayer <laughs> advocate Emirata. Emirata. <laughs> um, so uh, on that point, if you had to identify one problem right now that would be the number one problem that you think exists at the IRS, what would it be currently? Well, first, let me just say, I mean, before I became, I mean, I never wanted, I never had any intention of working at the IRS, you know, and when I founded the Community Tax Law Project in 1992, it was just, you know, there are problems out there, and they, there's a niche, you know, people weren't thinking about low-income taxpayers except for the 14 academic clinics, and it was like, well, there's there's this world out there, and and 
you know, I was always identifying systemic issues because it's great to take case by case by case, and that's how you learn about the impact of the tax law on individual human beings, and it strengthens your systemic advocacy. You could never separate the individual representation from the systemic advocacy because that strengthens your systemic advocacy and it informs your systemic advocacy. And your systemic advocacy should, you know, just doing one case at a time, you'd exhaust yourself. So you have to think constantly like, well, what needs to change in order so that I never see this case again, that this never bothers the next person. And so, you know, I was doing that before I became the National Taxpayer Advocate. And when we did the center, it was just sort of like, well, what are the things about what I've been doing that I want to keep doing? And we'll just put it into the Center for Taxpayer Rights. And I mean, the issues that I just see, and this goes to the latest grant that we've gotten from Arnold Ventures, which is, okay, the IRS has gotten this $80 billion and it could blow it. It could not do the transformation that it needs to do. And um, how do you make that, get that bipartisan recognition of what needs to be done for the IRS? And it can't be left to the IRS alone because the IRS alone will come up with some glorified things, but we're talking about transformation. So that is what we're, that's the biggest challenge, and if it blows it, it will. This is a once in a generational chance to get this money, to have this money, and use this money well. And if it doesn't do it right, it's going to be another generation before it gets that kind of support. Um, and I, it needs to do that operating in an environment that's highly politicized. But I want to remind everybody RA 98. You know, there was a lot of political language around there. You know, there's always been a lot of political language about taxes because taxes are ultimately very, very political. So just get over it. <laughs> Sorry, but country. just get yeah. over it. Yeah. You know, it happens in every country. Yeah. It really does, you know. And I just, but you really need to focus on what the right, th you know, how do you go about doing this transformation? So we received a grant from Arnold Ventures, it was just finalized this week, that we are going to be starting in late February a series of tax chats about the transformation of the IRS. And my, my biggest concern about the Inflation Reduction Act is that there was really no legislative history. When you had RA-98, you had the National Commission on Restructuring the IRS. They spent a year going around the country holding public hearings. It was a bipartisan commission. Um, people differed in, if you read the report, you know, at the end of it, there are people who, members of the commission that wrote, you know, here's my position on this. I slightly differ from what the commission ultimately recommended. So the report itself recognized a whole, you know, continuum of, of recommendations, even though they had their formal recommendations, but dissenting voices had their representation too. And then you had the hearings, you know, in the House and the Senate, and, you know, I was able to testify before each. Um, and you had a committee report in the House, and you had a committee report in the Senate, and you had a conference report. You don't have any of that with the Inflation Reduction Act. So part of what our grant is, is to create a retroactive legislative history for the 80 billion for the IRS. Why is it that the IRS really needs this 80 billion? And 
and then we'll hold a conference in September, but we're doing this whole series of chats with people from the United States, from all over the world, you know, just like, well, what does this mean? And what should a transformed IRS for the 21st century be? And, um, you know, the IRS will submit its plan, which is great, but you're going to have 10 years to work on this. And we're really wanting to put some detail into where it should be. So that's, and in the process, maybe you could make the point as to why people of any political party, whether you're liberal or you're conservative or you're progressive or whatever word you want to put on it, why you should care about the IRS getting the resources it needs to treat taxpayers in the way that they deserve to be treated. And that's our focus, you know, that taxpayers be treated right. And that is a whole taxpayer rights focus. And that's our, you know, taxpayer bill of rights is our focus. And what does that mean with the $80 billion? And, um, you know, that's what we're doing. That's, that's what my focus is, my personal focus is going forward. In reconstructing that legislative history, uh, this may sound like a facetious question, but are, are you going to interview Senator Manchin or his staff because they were so central well, to that I don't, legislation? Well, I don't know. You know, I mean, I'm going to start with Charles Rosati. I mean, what did you have to do with the Restructuring Act? I'm going to talk to people about how do you change culture in a large organization. I'm not necessarily focused, we're not necessarily focusing on tax. You know, we'll bring in people from other countries where it's become highly political, the taxation, and how are you dealing with that? We'll bring in people talking about IT. I don't know that anybody knows about the IRS budget. I want to really do a deep dive into what's in the enforcement category in the IRS budget. What is covered under the service? Like if you're heavily weighting the Inflation Reduction Act on the enforcement side, what's in enforcement? And I don't think people understand or know the details of the IRS budget. I know it because I lived it for 18 years, you know, and, and how money was allocated within that budget. And so if you talk about that, then you will see what's in that budget as opposed to filling, you know, leaving a vacuum where people can talk about 87,000 agents with guns, which is like such a minuscule part <laughs> of the actual IRS budget, you know, and and also maybe there are problems with the way the IRS budget is aligned right now. It's much more of a bifurcation than maybe it needs to be. But, you know, those are the sorts of things that we're trying to build. And this is, you know, fairly, you know, tilting at windmills, but I've tilted at windmills all my life. So, you know, get over it. I keep saying get over it, but it's just this is what you do is it will help people understand the allocation and maybe disagree with the allocation, but at least it will be informed rather than just sound bites. That's and if people want to do sound bites, then I want to make it difficult for them to do <laughs> sound bites. You know, they'll have to they'll have to deal with actual information out there. You know, my concern has been it's a total vacuum, and it wasn't a total vacuum for RA-98. You know, it was almost unanimous in the House and in the Senate passing RA-98. I mean, you don't see that legislation today. And why was it that we got that at that point? And it was highly political at that point. 
I look forward to reading that. It's yeah, well, we're hearing it. It's just going to be a series of conversations. We're just going to have conversations from like late February until maybe June. That's very cool. Yeah. Now, shifting gears a little bit, so Anna, in terms of the work that you're doing, looking at states, I'm curious about this because I learned not too long ago, a couple of years ago, I guess, but that, you know, time, time is nothing now in the post-COVID <laughs> world. But I learned a few years ago that there is a Pennsylvania Office of the Taxpayer Advocate, mm-hmm. and I've interacted with them once via email, and they got back to me. But anyway, uh, what is your experience in terms of looking at these state taxpayer advocate offices? Are there many of them? Are they effective? What do they do? Yeah, so there are um, more than I expected there to be. Um, and states states have different motivations than the IRS um, in terms of their tax administration. Um, and so that motivation sort of informs how, how what powers they give to their taxpayer advocate if, if they have one. Um, so I think what we're seeing in states that do have a taxpayer advocate's office, um, and there are, like I said, there are more than I thought there were, but not every state has one. Some of them are given more powers than others. Some of them have more of an oversight, give recommendations role. Some of them um, are very closely aligned with, with the national taxpayer advocate. They have similar responsibilities. Some of them are more know, less legislative recommendations and more boots on the ground assisting taxpayers who need it. So I think one huge takeaway that I have with, with looking at the states is every state is so different. <laughs> um, and there are these little, you know, some taxpayer advocates have authority and they can go in and change a decision. Some of them can only do certain things, you know, they, they don't have as much power. Um, and that depends on how the state looks at revenue, um, how, how important that revenue is to the state. Um, but I think you know, one thing we're looking to take away from this survey of state tax administration is model legislation. So something we can push out to the states and, and DC and Puerto Rico um, for states that don't have a taxpayer advocate or have a taxpayer advocate that is not empowered to do maybe as much as we think they could do, um, you know, we would like to put together um, a model act for states to, to create their own taxpayer advocate's office. Because in states that do have a taxpayer advocate, I think there's, there's a huge difference in taxpayer trust, taxpayer experience when interacting with their tax, state tax system, which for a lot of people is sort of this deep, dark, unknown system, um, which is saying a lot when you're comparing something to the IRS. So um, I, think, I think the takeaway is every state has its unique needs, and that is reflected in its taxpayer advocate's office. We are working right now at the District of Columbia Revenue Office. They've invited us in to do a training for their their up-and-coming senior leaders. And it is a thought leadership series. It is a six-week session, two hours a week. And um, 
It's really exciting. Now, as a DC resident, I'm very excited about it, and all you DC residents out there, you can thank us if we <laughs> see a difference in the way that the tax administration treats people, but they are very engaged, and it is really extraordinary, the conversations that we're having. Um, and it's a rights-based discussion, and it's a discussion about what makes taxpayers comply or, you know, and what the role of trust is and the role of using audits or enforcement activities. And we're hoping that building on this session that we've done with DC that we can actually work with other tax administrations at the state level and focus on this. Thank you so much for listening to Tax Justice Warriors. You can visit our website at taxjusticewarriors.com. Please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. The views expressed on this podcast are not official opinions of the IRS, the Low Income Taxpayer Clinic Program, or the employers or people who spoke on this program. Your tax situation is unique, so do not take the statements on this program as legal advice. Consult with your tax professional if you seek specific advice. There are now three things that are certain in life death, taxes, and your subscription to the Tax Justice Warriors podcast.